Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues affecting Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School of Public Policy, where the region's leading policy school. Come and study with us. You can find out more about our courses at crawford.anu.edu.au. In our 50th episode of the podcast a few weeks back, I announced that we would be tweaking the format of the pod. And one of the ways we're doing this is by having a rotation of regular hosts for all of your policy discussions. And for the last few episodes, you've heard from Maya Bandari, Sharon Bessel and Bob Cotton. And you'll hear more from them in the episodes to come. But with me today, I am delighted to welcome Sue Regan as my co-host. Welcome, Sue. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So for those who missed it, Sue was on the 50th podcast special, and she's going to be hosting future episodes of the podcast. She's a PhD scholar and a tutor at Crawford School of Public Policy, and she's also program director at the Institute of Public Administration Australia. Previously, Sue was chief executive of the Resolution Foundation, which is a UK-based research institute focusing on the well-being of low earners. So she's in fact the perfect person to comment on this episode's discussion because this week I'm playing you an interview I recorded earlier this week with someone who has spent his career at the very highest levels of public policy and public health. Why don't you tell us about who he is, So. So that person is Sir Harry Burns, um, who was Chief Medical Officer for Scotland from 2005 to 2014. Sir Harry Burns trained as a surgeon in Glasgow. He completed a master's degree in public health in 1990, became Director of Public Health for Greater Glasgow Health Board in 1994, and as mentioned, Chief Medical Officer for Scotland in 2005. He was um, knighted in 2011 and became Professor of Global Health uh, at Strathclyde University in 2014. So, so you spent much of your career in the UK working in senior UK government positions and you've looked at issues like housing, poverty and well-being. Did you have any dealings with Sir Harry in that time? So Sir Harry is a very significant figure in public health in the UK. Um, I didn't personally have any dealings with him, um, but he was, you know, very active in promoting the public health agenda and I'm very familiar with his work. So how would you describe the state of health and well-being of, of UK society? So, I mean, in some ways, similar characteristics to here in Australia and in other countries, um, you know, it has fairly high levels of inequality. So uh, overall, you could say that the health and well-being is fairly good, but there are certainly serious problems in particular areas uh, where the health and well-being of UK society is very poor. Um, you know, and since the austerity measures that followed the global financial crisis, you know, those uh, those areas and those issues have, have become uh, worse. Um, you know, and what Sir Harry talks about, as well here, is in the Scottish context. And Glasgow is one of those areas where uh, health and well-being is a, you know, is a very serious problem in some areas. Well, it's great to have your insights on this. And it's a topic we're going to return to in part three of this podcast after we play the interview with Sir Harry Burns. Uh, so for our listeners, don't forget to stick around for that, especially because Sue and I will also take a look at some of your comments about previous podcasts and policy forum articles. And on that note, a quick reminder to send us any comments or feedback you've got about either this podcast or any of our previous podcasts. You can email us podcast at policyforum.net. Alternatively, you can always share your thoughts with us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. But for now, let's hear what Sir Harry Burns had to say. Sir Harry Burns, many thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. 
So let's have a look at your background first, Harry. You started your career practicing medicine on the front lines in Glasgow, but you shifted across to public health. What inspired that shift? So I was a surgeon in total for about 15 years and worked for the first part of that training in straightforward hospitals, mixed clientele, some affluent, some from the lower end of the social scale and so on. But when I became a consultant, I went to the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow, a hospital with a, a very proud history. Lord Lister first described antiseptic surgery there. It had this, it was the hospital with the second, uh, second hospital in the world to have a radiology department and things like that. But it now serves the east end of the city predominantly, which is the most socially and economically deprived segment of the UK population. And it was while I worked there that the disparities in well-being, the disparities in physical and mental health really struck home to me. I was aware of these, obviously, but the depth of um, negativity that existed in the east end of Glasgow about one's health was quite overpowering. To give you an example, you would be uh, seeing a patient that you'd seen several times previously. He would have come in previously with alcoholic pancreatitis or something like that. It was a serious, can be a very serious condition and has a significant mortality. And you would see him for the fourth or fifth time and you'd say to him again, John, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. The response you would usually get would be, well, so what? What's life got for me? You know, life is really rubbish and the booze is what makes it worth living. So I'm going to keep drinking. That was the kind of attitude. Similarly, we would lecture people about smoking or diet or whatever, but the same response, people felt that life was not worth making sacrifices for for their health. So I began to realise that the people in the East End of Glasgow didn't need more surgery, they needed more well-being. And I went off to find out what well-being was and how it could be created. Hence, I resigned my post, went off to become a trainee in public health and did a master's in public health. I may say one of my surgical colleagues was, um, or former surgical colleagues, was important in that. He was a neurosurgeon, an extremely capable, high-flying neurosurgeon who gave up neurosurgery a year or two before I gave up surgery and became a member of parliament. Sam Gilbraith was his name. Um, and Sam was very, very left-wing. And Sam tried to persuade me to go into politics and I told him I'd rather have my eyes plucked out than, <laughs> than go into politics. So it was him that suggested that the alternative might be public health as a way of trying to improve the well-being of people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So that's how I got into public health. I, I want to move on to talk about wellness and what we actually mean by wellness. When asked to define what it means to be well, many people would probably talk about the absence of illness or injury. Why do you think this is the wrong approach? Well, not being ill is certainly a component of being well. But the original World Health Organization definition of health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of illness or infirmity. And our medical training focuses very much on ensuring the absence of illness. That's how doctors conceptualize health in the main. And that's partly because of our training, which focuses on pathogenesis, the causes of disease. It doesn't talk about salutogenesis, which is the term that's been coined to talk about the causes of well-being. So our training doesn't allow us to think about well-being in its broad sense. But the other problem about it is that we don't really appreciate how you create well-being. And therefore, we tend to focus on the things we can do, which is treat disease. Um, so 
trying to understand the causes of well-being, I think, is the key thing towards having a policy aimed at enhancing well-being in society. What What is well-being to you? What is well-being in well, society? Well, there are 20, 30 major theories in the literature around what causes well-being. Um, probably the one that had the biggest impact on me was the one produced by an American sociologist called Aaron Antonovsky, who spent a large part of his career in Israel studying the health of adults whose children had been in concentration camps. About 70% of them, he found, did not have high levels of well-being as defined as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, and 30% did. The 30% he felt had acquired in childhood a, an idea that he described as having a sense of coherence. And he defined a sense of coherence as a feeling that the world was structured and predictable and explainable and that one had the sense that one could manage whatever life threw at you. You understood what was happening. You felt you could manage it and you wanted to manage it. And this comes up again and again in some of these theories. Viktor Frankl, Austrian psychotherapist, therapist, who wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning, about his experiences in a concentration camp. And his view was that if you had a why to live, if you had a purpose in life, you could cope with just about anything life threw at you. And what I felt I was seeing in the East End of Glasgow was people who had no sense of purpose or meaning in their lives. They were just making do from one day to the next. And as the life disintegrated round about them, it became harder and harder to manage. I mean, I felt, talking to some of them, that if I was in their position, I would struggle to manage it. But of course, if you have the right type of family support and upbringing, you learn to cope. You learn to have Antonovsky's sense of coherence. And Antonovsky talked about those that did not have a strong sense of coherence would experience a state of chronic stress. And as a surgeon, my research interest was the stress response to illness and injury. So I knew a bit about stress. And we began to investigate it, and we found he was absolutely correct. People from the lower end of the social scale having a surgical procedure had a more pronounced stress response than those from the higher end of the social scale. They broke down more muscle protein and so on. And we began to look for evidence that social circumstances produce this chronic stress response. And of course, there are many, many studies in the literature that confirm that. So understanding that was another factor in me moving into public health. It became clear to me that, you know, just taking bits out of people wasn't what they needed. They needed some sense that they could manage their lives and be in control of their lives. You've talked there about some of the personal consequences of a lack of wellness. But what are some of the societal consequences of this? Well, we now know that um, well-being, and I'm going to indulge in a bit of jargon here, well-being is an emergent property of a complex adaptive system. The complex system that is society creates or destroys well-being in individuals depending on the circumstances that that individual experiences in early life and as he grows and develops and goes through life's transitions to adolescence to working age and so on. And some of the cohort studies that have looked at the experiences of children of adversity, uh, the study in New Zealand, the uh, Dunedin cohort is one Probably the largest one is the Adverse Childhood Experiences study carried out um, within the Kaiser Permanente system in California. And this shows that the more adversity a child experiences, the more likely he is to become an alcoholic or a drug user, the more likely he is, he is to be uh, arrested for violence or carrying weapons, the more likely they are to experience teenage pregnancy, the more likely they are to go to jail. 
Indeed, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study in California has calculated that children who experience four or more types of adversity in early life, neglect, abuse, parental mental illness and so on, four or more adverse events in early life, children, they've calculated that a a year's worth of neglect in the United States brings with it a lifetime cost to the American economy of $124 billion. Now that's the cost of that one year's cohort in terms of looking after them, providing them with health care, looking after them when they go to jail. Um, the fact that they don't work, the fact that they don't pay taxes, it's hugely significant. And, you know, so, so they've done very precise calculations, but every society is carrying that level of cost. I mean, if you just look at, at it on a pro rata basis, Scotland is a much, much smaller population than America. But I would calculate that just under £2 billion is the lifetime cost of one year's worth of child neglect. So children born in the 1950s, that cohort of neglected children will have cost about £2 billion. Children born in 1960, just under £2 billion, £61 they're adding to it and so on, it all mounts up. So this is an, the argument for doing something about well-being. For those on the left of the political spectrum, it's an argument for social justice, for giving these children an equal opportunity to have a good life. For those on the right of the political spectrum, you could make it a financial argument. Do the right thing for children and it will save the country money and enhance economic growth. So what's not to like here? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a pressing issue that every society needs to grapple with. I mean, you've mounted a pretty convincing case for both the left and right to be invested in better outcomes here, yet the countries around the world are still wrestling with these problems. The, the people who might be able to make a difference here are policymakers. But let's have a fo- let's have a think about those for a second. I mean, they how do policymakers tend to think about health and well-being? Have they still got quite a kind of tunneled view of it? And what what could they be doing better? So, having worked in the policymaking arena for a decade or so, um, what I concluded was that policy tends to be superficial. Um, as I say, well-being is a something that emerges from the way a complex adaptive system is managed, whereas policymakers like and politicians like a relatively simple explanation, like childhood obesity is because they eat too much sugar and therefore we need to discourage them from eating too much sugar, so we'll put sugar tax on. In fact... Um, There is evidence from Stanford University that children who experience adversity and who are stressed as a result, their brains, centers in the brain associated with appetite are resistant to the effects of insulin. So these children eat and their brains never get the signal that their blood sugar is normal. They just keep on eating, so they become obese. And indeed, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study emerged from a realisation within a weight reduction clinic that a lot of these overweight young people had experienced abuse in early life. So politicians like a simple explanation, a flag they can fly, whereas we really need to sit down and tease out the many drivers of poor outcome and do something about all of them. The way in which you change a complex system is to do lots of things, to test lots of things, find the things that make a difference and implement a method that allows those things that make a difference to be done consistently and at scale. And that's the second problem with policy. Policy is implemented in inverted commas without a method for implementation coming along with it. And what I tell civil service colleagues and so on is um, unless you know what you want to change by how much, by when and by what method and have a way of measuring the change, 
you're not going to make any progress. It's just going to be some some people will try something and it will work and they'll just keep on doing the thing that works, whereas others will fail to make any difference and they'll just stop and the policy will eventually run into the buffers. So policy needs to take into account the broad causes of the problem, not be oversimplistic in its uh, analysis. And secondly, you need to think about a method for implementation. It strikes me that one of the challenges is getting over the short-termism that's that's such a feature of politics. When politicians, you know, have very short electoral cycles, they look for policy announcements which give them a big splash in the main me- in the mainstream media, perhaps without thinking about the sort of policy implementation that sits behind it. So how do we get across those types of barriers? We've seen this time and time again. A new policy is implemented with a big fanfare and three years later nothing has changed and therefore the policy comes back to bite the politicians that announced it. And that's a pity because quite often policies that are going to work get ditched because they haven't been allowed to run for long enough. But I think the other big problem is that the method for assessing impact is usually not appropriate. So that, um, for example, in 10, 15 years ago, we implemented a project in Scotland where we set out to measure how many people had um, untreated hypertension. We asked health authorities to identify and manage risk factors for heart disease. And we didn't have an adequate method for collecting data. And as a result, people couldn't establish that change had happened. And as a result, folk stopped funding the the intervention. Now, I'm absolutely certain that change did take place because having spoken to GPs, some GPs were absolutely conscientious about it and would have made a difference. But we didn't have a way of capturing that. Now, in the 21st century, there is no excuse for not capturing all the data that we need. So what we're implementing is a machine learning approach to um, change. We've started in some counties in Scotland an approach where we want to change the way people are supported to make a difference in their lives. And using all the data that currently Amazon or Facebook or whatever would collect, using it for good purposes, using it to help the individual, not to sell things to the individual, but to identify how that individual's risk has changed and to identify those in whom it's not changing seems to me to be the way forward. So we've started looking at how machine learning can be used to do that. And we're very lucky in Scotland in that we have very comprehensive health data and so on. And I, and I would want to emphasise that this is not, you know, this is not research. This is about using that information in a better way to bring help and support to people who need that help and support. So if you were to offer one bit of advice to policymakers, what could and should they be doing better in this area? Standing back and thinking about the issue and getting the best possible scientific advice about it, not just grabbing the first argument that a lobbyist brings to them or whatever, stand back and think. And secondly, when you want to change something, think about the method. It's you know, we we implemented with the help of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston a, a patient safety program. We cut hospital mortality by fifteen percent within a few years. Um, we've reduced infant mortality. We've reduced stillbirth rate with our early years stuff and so on. And we did that by having the frontline staff design and test the interventions, telling us what worked, and then helping them scale up what worked so that everyone across Scotland implemented it. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the causes of real problems in intensive care units was ventilator-acquired pneumonia. 
And when I worked in intensive care units, if you were being ventilated for more than a week, you had about a 90% chance of having a ventilator-acquired pneumonia, which prolonged your recovery and sometimes killed you. So we asked intensive care people to test a range of interventions, which they did. And then we have graphs that shows that the the more consistently they applied those interventions, the less ventilator-acquired pneumonia they've had. We now have intensive care units in Scotland that go for years, literally years, without having a single ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Find out what works, do it consistently, and do it at scale. But don't ask experts what works. Ask the frontline staff because they have to implement it. In a 2014 TED talk that you gave, you spoke about being fed up with the language of commonwealth and all the connotations it has of money, richness and economic growth. What do you see as some of the problems of focusing on economic growth to improve society? Okay, well, economic growth is determined by... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. GDP, gross domestic product. GDP is based on adding together the value of things that a country produces and the cost of things that the country consumes. So if you want to enhance your GDP, you want lots of fat people eating lots of lots of junk food, consuming as much as they can. You want them smoking lots of cigarettes. You want them driving around in gas-guzzling cars because they'll buy lots and lots of petrol and all this kind of stuff. That will put your GDP up. Robert Kennedy about, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, made a speech in which he said, GDP measures everything that's important in an economy except that which makes life worth living. So GDP takes no account of the health of a population. It takes no account of the inequality that the population experiences. It takes no account of um, the way in which children are looked after at home, the cost to the economy of a mother staying at home to look after her child, this kind of thing. And what we're interested in Scotland, we're interested in developing inclusive growth, growth in which the whole population has a part to play and benefits from. But we also have this notion of the well-being economy, an economy that enhances well-being in the population that enhances educational attainment, enhances employment, enhances creativity, reduces crime. And we're working with some other countries to try and work out what the well-being economy should be measured by. Uh, New Zealand are involved with that. Countries like Costa Rica and so on are involved. So we're, we're working to develop this concept of a well-being economy where health is a driver of economic growth. I want to turn a little closer to home and talk about some UK politics, particularly around the Brexit vote and sort of debates over austerity and concern for what the, leaving the EU will mean for the UK economy. Are you worried at all about what a post-Brexit era might mean for health and wellness in the United Kingdom? Well, um, there's certainly a lot of doom and gloom around uh, as we head for what looks like a hard Brexit um, with both sides going in the huff, you know, we can't reach agreement so the EU will turn its back on Britain and Britain will turn its back on the EU and um, that will leave us in some difficulty. Uh, yeah, last couple of days there's been a story that um, Scotland is setting out to stockpile medicines. For example, most insulin is produced in Denmark if all of a sudden we can't, you know, Scotland doesn't produce any insulin. Well, what are diabetics going to do if we can't get um, imports at a reasonable price from the EU? And that's that's just one of 
thousands of examples of what may happen. In this day and age, insularity does no one any good. You know, we are a highly connected planet and it does no one any good to turn their back on anyone else. You know, that way lies real difficulties. So I'm not... I'm not sure what will happen. I think there's a real possibility that the untruths around the benefits of Brexit are already, you know, well established the day after the vote. One of the claims that Britain would have $300 billion to spend extra on the health service and so on, it was, you know, Nigel Farage put his hand up and said, oh, no, no, that was wrong. Well, he was actually pushing that line day before the, you know, so there are real issues around Brexit and I earnestly hope that common sense emerges in the next few months on both sides of the argument and we step back and take a breather and work out what a better way forward both for the European Union and for the UK is. And that's before you get into the argument about the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, I see no easy solution to that at all. So it's it's a potential disaster. Common sense appears to have been in fairly short supply in the Brexit discussion. So in what sort of hope do you hold, hold out that uh, there might be some kind of positive resolution? And looking into the longer term, if it goes ahead as planned with a kind of hard Brexit, what does that actually mean for the UK society's health and well-being? Yeah. Well, I think the long-term impact is, is going to be bad because, paradoxically, the communities that were most likely to vote for Brexit were the poorer communities, the ones that had the lowest level of employment. And they're the ones that I think will be hit hardest by Brexit. And therefore, the gap between rich and poor might actually widen. And my analysis of the health of Scots where inequality has been widening since the 1950s is based very much on the fact that since the 1950s and 1960s, traditional jobs and heavy industry have disappeared and therefore the gap in wealth between rich and poor has widened and that has brought about increased deaths amongst younger working age people from problems like drugs, alcohol, suicide, violence and so on. Now, we've done very precise analysis of this and this became known as the Glasgow effect and my argument was no no this is nothing special about Glasgow this is what will happen in any society that experiences a collapse in its economic power base and that view has been strengthened by work published in the United States in the past couple of years in which um, It's been shown that there's been a very significant rise in deaths amongst white, that is, non-African-American, non-Hispanic, blue-collar workers in their 50s from drugs, alcohol and suicide. And the Brookings Institute has shown that the places that had the highest rise in these deaths were the places that had the highest votes for President Trump. So what I think we're seeing in Europe is the rise of fringe populist politics and that the health consequences of fiscal inequality bring widening death rates between rich and poor and bring about political unrest. So I'm quite worried about what the future might bring, not just for Europe, but any economic zone that experiences this kind of inequality, I think, is liable to see a backlash at the the polling booths. So we'll need to see, but one needs to be optimistic that common sense will prevail. But if it doesn't, then I think there will be issues for health problems. The other, the other big problem is the workforce. Um, lots of foreign nationals are leaving the UK and nurses um, and so on, nurses, doctors, we're having trouble filling posts. So that will be a significant issue. And um, 
The population of Scotland has only grown or will only by 2020. There will be more deaths each year than births. So the only way we can grow the population, the only way we can grow the economic um, power, the, the economic workforce is, is through immigration. And that's not happening just now. Very problematic indeed. A lot of your work looks at the value of prevention and early intervention in health. Do you think there are some broader lessons for policymakers working in other areas outside of health? I mean, is there a need for a more preventative approach to public policy? This is what what I realised very early on was that prevention was not just about better health. It's about better everything. I I, am... suggested to my colleagues at Strathclyde University that we should set up a centre for doing upstream things to stop really bad things happening. <laughs> so I can't think of an appropriate algorithm for that, but, um, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. If you get early life right, if you get people supported to live organised, non-chaotic lives where children feel safe and supported when they're at school, they will not get involved in trouble, they will not get involved in drugs or alcohol, they will stick in at school, they will get jobs, they will be economically productive and we will see none of this alienation that has been a feature of Scottish society since the shipyards began closing in the 1950s and 60s. And in doing so, everything becomes better. Literally, you close prisons because people aren't offending anymore. And we see individual cases time and time again. You know, just talking to um, someone who works in the community justice sphere who has been costing the involvement of the police in a whole range of cases. And what she's telling me is one man who over the past 30 months has cost the police £660,000 in terms of police time because he goes out and gets drunk every day and he gets drunk and he causes a breach of the peace and public nuisance and he gets sent to jail for 30 days and all that, you know. There is something in that man's life that needs sorted. So someone, instead of arresting him, should sit down and ask him what matters to him. What does he need to live a good life? Um, I had another case where a woman was doing exactly the same thing. And when someone asked her that question, what she needed to live a good life was to get a tidy house. She wakens up in the morning, her house is such a mess, she can't bear to be in it, so she goes out and gets drunk. How much cheaper would it be to get her a home help? for one day a week to keep her house tidy. She would live a better life. She wouldn't attend A&E departments frequently. She wouldn't go to jail frequently. So we tend to punish people for their failings rather than try to understand the causes of those failings. There is a Jesuit priest in Los Angeles who many years ago started a program called uh, Homeboy Bakeries to give gang, Latino gang members' jobs. And he comes to Glasgow uh, fairly frequently. And when I took him around schools, he told what he said to the kids was, we should stand in awe at the burdens the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at the way they carry them. So if we try to understand why poor people are in the difficulties they are in and try to help them out of that, it's much better for society. They don't do bad things. They don't cost the system a ton of money in terms of health care. So I don't really like the word prevention because it smacks of a kind of Victorian top-downness. But supporting people to be in a better place in their lives, I think, is hugely important for stopping bad things happening. So just finally, you're talking to a policy audience, policy-engaged audience, policymakers, people working at the coal face of policy implementation. You can wave your magic wand and have and implement one thing that to change policy. What would it be? Oh, it'd be about early years. It would be about supporting families. Uh, and, I, and, and I wouldn't change one thing. You have to change lots of things, as I've already said. But change lots of things to give families security. I mean, I have visited 
hundreds of projects supporting families in difficulty, drug abusing parents, parents with mental health problems, parents in jail, this kind of thing. I have never met a parent who wanted to be a bad parent, but I know met hundreds of people who didn't know how to be good parents and they they are not good parents because they're overwhelmed by the difficulties of day-to-day life. They become violent, they become depressed. They So find ways to support those people to be better parents and you will start to see their children going to school more frequently. You'll start to see women living in violent households, not needing antidepressants and not visiting any departments and so on. And eventually you will see significant savings to the public purse because those kids aren't growing up to go to jail. So family support, supporting children, understanding how chaos can damage families and those children and put all the effort into that and society will change immeasurably. One last thing, if I may. I I see pictures of refugee camps in Syria. I see pictures of boatloads of parents clutching children coming across the Mediterranean and so on and the children look terrified. Those kids are the next generation, potentially the next generation's doctors and nurses and artists and musicians and writers and so on. But they're going to be permanently damaged by their experiences. If we want the world to be a better place, we need to start now and do things differently to support these families who live dangerous, stressful existences. And um, policymakers who force them to do that have a big, big burden of guilt in my view it's a really important and powerful message to end on so harry burns many thanks for your time i really appreciate you coming on the podcast thanks for having me that was sir harry burns chatting with me there and a huge thanks to sir harry for his time i've still got sue regan with me for a bit of post pod discussion so sue what are your thoughts on the podcast? What jumped out at you in that interview? I think what struck me first was uh, a lot of the universal messages that came from what Sue, Sir Harry was talking about uh, in relation to public health in lots of different countries and contexts. I mean, he focused on Glasgow, which has some very serious public health issues. But I think, you know, for many uh, people listening, those comments will have resonated with, within their own context. Um, you know, I kind of felt a bit uh, pessimistic about what Sir Harry was talking about. I think he made such a compelling case for the need to invest in early intervention, in family support. Um, and yet, you know, we don't do that enough yet, despite that compelling evidence base for doing such Um But, you know, I also felt uh, some optimism. Uh, I like the fact that uh, he has such hope that, you know, common sense generally will prevail on a lot of these issues. Um, And he also mentioned about how they are increasingly using in the Scottish context, uh, you know, greater use of data uh, in uh, understanding personal circumstances more. He talked about machine learning and how that can help people. I think that It's going to be a very interesting avenue uh, in terms of directing public health resources. So, yes, a kind of a mixture of feeling a bit pessimistic um, that we still have these issues uh, despite the compelling evidence base, but also, yeah, some grounds for optimism. So Harry was obviously talking about public health issues in the Scottish context, but did you get a sense that what he was talking about also had sort of broader lessons for policymakers throughout the sort of Asian Pacific region, for example? Yeah, I think there's a lot of commonality both, you know, in, in across the Western world and the Eastern world uh, and here in the Asia Pacific. Um, you know, when it comes to individual circumstances and the family and community networks, there's, uh, you know, very similar stories can be heard about what's happening in 
uh, some disadvantaged communities in Glasgow, but also in you know in other communities throughout the Asia Pacific. So yeah, I thought there was a lot of common resonance to what Sahari was talking about. And one of the things we sort of touched on in the interview there was what might happen in the UK post Brexit. And you know, uh, I mean, the UK has been through a period of sort of prolonged austerity in the lead up to possibly exiting the uh, the European Union. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what's what might be the state of public health in the UK over the next over the next few years? It's obviously in a fairly tumultuous period mm. at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a big unknown, um, and I mean, I remain very concerned uh, in the whole public health arena, but in, in other areas of social policy uh, and well-being of the UK population. You know, as Sir Harry pointed out, there's this kind of deep irony that those communities that uh, were most likely to vote to leave uh, the European Union are, are those communities which will be most adversely affected uh, and will, will lose European investment uh, and be affected by the broader economic you know, challenges that the country will be facing in the coming years. Um, so yes, great uncertainty, but um, and stormy, I think stormy skies ahead for the UK and the whole kind of public health agenda. Great. Well, thanks for that, Sue. Now let's have a, a quick chat about some of our listener comments. Um, first of all, Greg on Facebook, who left us a comment about last week's podcast, which was uh, global policy at the coalface. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to this, Sue, but uh, uh, Sharon Bessel and Bob Cotton had a chat to Ian Chambers. And Ian is a PhD scholar at Crawford School. Uh, he's one of your fellow PhD scholars. I imagine you may know him. Yes, I know Ian very well. I mean, he's a, a wonderful example of how you can combine uh, study and, you know, doing a PhD with uh, also taking forward a very uh, exciting and practical public policy initiative. So, yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic character. Well, you know, it was Ian there and Holly Halford-Smith, who co-presents the monthly broadcast from Questacon with him, and two amazing, amazing high school students, Zoe and Max, who seem to know more about the SDGs than many policymakers, to be honest. And uh, Greg on Facebook left the comment a comment that said, the SDGs really need everyone to contribute, and the young person's plan for the Planet Programme Maybe just such an enabler that can cross global borders and barriers to do just that. What do you think about that? Yes, I mean it's a it's a, a very powerful comment. Um, you know, it's the young person's plan is one of those initiatives that crosses boundaries, um, and you know, I'm very exciting that it's being led here at Crawford. Um, yeah, I mean, great. You know, we need more initiatives like that. And, you know, and I wish the young person's plan uh, great success in the future. It's, you know, the, the young people that are involved in it really are fabulous. They get very excited about it. So it's it's good news. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's very interesting as well with that program, how Ian has combined essentially kind of business planning principles into translating the sustainable development goals. Great stuff. There was another comment on from Kelly. This was on an article on Policy Forum. The article was called China's Big Brother Smart Cities, and it was about the massive undertaking um, towards creating smart cities in China. And Kelly wrote, there seems to be very little chance for democracy in China in a future where the government has so much knowledge about its citizens. Will the rise of smart cities mean the end of democratisation in authoritarian countries? What do you make of that, Sue? Well, what a, a fantastic question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we're only really scratching the surface of um, what we know about the relationship between advancing technology and smart cities and what it means for uh, democracy and politics more generally. Um, I think there'll be lots of future podcasts on this topic. Um, but yes, you know, it's something that I think we all need to be concerned about and really be be scrutinising, uh, not, not only in the Chinese context. Do you think that uh, governments and corporations, broadly speaking, uh, can be trusted with our personal data? No, I don't. Um, I think we should all be sceptics in this regard. Um, you know, and really take care with our personal data. Yeah, it, it feels like we're, you know, we're uh, r rushing uh, headlong into giving away our uh, privacy and personal data. And 
yeah, there needs to be much more safeguards in place, in my view. I mean, over the last year or so, we've seen this sort of unfolding story or around, particularly around Facebook and Facebook data and, you know, Russian, alleged Russian interference in the US elections, in Brexit. Um, I wonder if you have any sense whether there might be something of a kind of public backlash about um, about data and data usage as a res- as a result of that, do you see that the um, uh, that the winds are changing in this in that direction? I think that there, there seems to have been some more debate about it. Obviously, you know, given the profile of some of the uh, issues you've just mentioned, there's more conversation happening. But I think that conversation is really happening among. Uh, some select groups of people, perhaps people who are very interested in public policy, um, but not really in the bro- much in the broader community. Um, you know, it's it's too convenient to uh, you know share data with a vast array of corporates uh, and governments, and um, I don't think I don't think that I don't see the general public doing a lot of questioning yet. So it's also really keep it really hard to keep a handle on where you're sharing your data and who you're sharing your your data with, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, we all tick that box saying we've we've read and agreed to the terms and conditions. Um, I don't think any of us ever, you know, no read them. one ever reads no. the terms and conditions. Do uh, they? No. So it's a uh, no. No one reads them, and it means that we all too easily, you know, give away important data, which you know, which is you know matters to individuals. Well, I would suggest to our listeners that they definitely read the terms and conditions on this podcast. It's not going to happen, Martin. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to write them first, I think. Uh, So, uh, look, a quick reminder to you all, we are really keen to get your thoughts on what we've talked about today or any other podcasts that we've we've covered off. You can reach us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. You can contact us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or you can just go old school and send us an email. We love getting emails. Podcast at policyforum.net. We'll be back next week with another podcast. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sue Regan, we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.